You can't apologize for all of 2020, though, Kyle, as much as you would love to. I, I would. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Just says I'm sorry. Like, yeah. I don't want to take any of the blame for it, but I'll apologize for it. It's good to have empathy. Ooh, that's a nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> So today on the podcast, we have Sanango Akpem. You actually just recently changed positions, but you are author of Cross-Cultural Design, which both Jackie and I read. Um, yes. And so we're, we're both very excited to talk about that and talk about whatever else you're working on. I know you just started a new position. That's right. That's right. I just started, I guess it's like two months now at Nava. Um, and Nava is a, a civic tech company uh, based in D.C., but they have offices in New York and San Francisco as well. You know, work with federal, state governments to improve the ability for governments to offer services to citizens. So everything from unemployment systems, paid leave systems, and so on. I'm still getting into it like it's a new job, right? But I've oh, really yeah. been enjoying it. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I imagine Congrats. a lot of the design around that is systems and trying to work around probably bureaucracy. Is that correct? Yeah, there's, I think, a huge part where we want to draft off of work that's already been done. You know, I come from an agency. Uh, I was at an agency for five years before I started at Nava. And the mood there is very much of, you know, we need to create new things, you know, new brands, new looks, new feels, mm. and not really draft off of what exists already, except for if there's an existing client brand. However, with civic tech, I think you really want to use systems that are, you know, from a technical side off the shelf as much as possible. And from, you know, design system side, you know, like the design systems that the um, U.S. design service has set up and others so that you're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Is your cross-cultural work going to come into play, you think, in your new position? I think in some ways, yes. And the reason I say that is the book focuses, you know, not only on what's happening in far flung parts of the world, but also just ways of thinking about who we are as designers and like who we are as practitioners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll give you a specific example. One of the things that I examine is our ability to state what our assumptions are about our clients. Mm -hmm. So from a kind of like global perspective, we may say something like, well, we know that most of our clients in whatever particular region, they like using their local currency to shop online. Uh, that's a huge assumption and probably mm. not true uh, without research to back it up. And so instead you flip it around and you say, what types of currency do you most often use when you go shopping, right? So then mm. it becomes a research question. And we see the same thing when we're doing work for government services. Uh, you have to do a lot of research in order to understand where people are actually coming from you know, what a veteran may need and mm -hmm. instead of making assumptions about who they are. So yeah, there's a lot of tie-ins. Yeah, for sure. In many ways, the book read as, as very much a guide for research. Did you intend for that? <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> so yeah, I am just like many of us, you know, I started my design career, I guess it was 2004 or so, you know, started off more like actually building websites as a semi-developer, you know, front-end designer as they call them now. And didn't really know much about, you know, the, the practice and the process of research. Uh, but over time, and I think as my career you know, changed and developed, I did a lot more of it. And it was very clear to me when I wrote Cross-Cultural Design that without some basis, like a practical basis in research, 
and like actually understanding who people are, there's no way that anybody can actually pull this off. And the most successful people who have pulled it off um, are people who actually ask those difficult, honest questions about their audiences. So I think I probably went into it with this idea that's like, we're going to talk about all the cool ways that this theory, you know, applies to your brand. But in fact, we need to get out there and talk to people. Or, you know, another interesting point would be like, as a researcher, I'm not actually the best place person to, to do this research. I need to pass it off to somebody, you know, from that local culture or from that community. So, mm-hmm. so um, I manage the Boston design team. And we actually we we read cross cultural design over this past quarter. You know, we, we'd read a chapter and discuss it every week. And, nice. you know, for us, and you mentioned too, you were at an agency for about four years or so. There's so many wonderful anecdotes and examples in this book. And every time we read more and more, we're like, oh man, we really gotta, <laughs> we really gotta like do more. We keep going back though to the engagements we have and not all the time there is a, a budget for that or maybe the audience is just westernized maybe to start we are only releasing it within the united states and so we're all talking about like well are there ways to incorporate this thinking in these smaller projects that we're only on for you know four to six to 12 weeks what what were some ways that you were able to incorporate some of your learnings into your smaller client engagements that didn't necessarily have a focus on on different cultures other than the US. Yeah, I will speak in a little bit of a hypothetical here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, rest assured that this was a, a real example. So let's say that you have a shorter engagement. Um, let's say it's maybe a, a nonprofit client in a Southern American city. And uh, they have an existing brand, you know how it goes, right? It's like a logo that they created, and they like mm-hmm. it, they got some colors and stuff, right? They got their content, small team, with eight to 10 people. Is this ringing a bell? Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, <ways>. yeah. <laughs> all right. So, you know, look, you're going to do a new website for them if they want it to be updated and, and fresh. So immediately you can see that there are some different audience types um, that we can identify, which have cultural dissimilarities. So, you know, there may be a funder class, you know, in the American South who are of a certain pedigree and uh, you know a certain kind of cultural background, but then there also may be community members who are of a completely different one. Some of the beneficiaries of uh, you know the nonprofits programs or something like that. And so cross cultural thinking and research doesn't necessarily have to apply to the national level. It can mm-hmm. also apply to the community level. Sure. You know, I live in Astoria, and it's a traditionally Greek and Eastern European neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's a convenience store right down the street. That is definitely not that at all. And I know that that's a completely different community, you know, so it would be wrong of me to assume very much about Astoria based on, you know, the, the historical model. So anyway, mm. the point I'm trying to make is like, it doesn't have to be about national culture or language. It can be very much like, you know, the subnational and even local community level. Sure. And if you're not having a lot of money for research or time, you know, with these shorter engagements, you know, at least announcing that and being clear that, you know, you are making assumptions, like that's also an acceptable way to go. Yeah. I think too, just knowing going into it, like just having read the book and knowing there's so many, it's so much out there to consider. And just knowing that is so helpful when let's say we have a client who for right now, they want to stick to a particular culture, but eventually expand. It's, it's good to know like how to kind of set that up and how to start thinking about how certain things will, will translate, you know, to the broader audience. It's good to just know that. And that's a really great point in that 
the goal of this shouldn't be, you know, unless your organization, your company is looking to internationalize and is looking to localize, the point isn't to make something that works for everybody all the time. I mean, that's an admirable goal. But, you know, if I'm setting up a dating site for young gay men in major metropolitan cities, like there are certain things that I'm just not going to do and not going to need to consider in my branding and my mm-hmm. my outlook. You know, I'm not going to be targeting, you know, middle-aged divorcees in suburban Arizona. Like it's just not part of who my, my audience makeup is. So, mm-hmm. But if in the future, <laughs> that is, <laughs> yeah. you'd like to expand, <laughs> you yeah. know, there's a lot of advice and a lot of ways to go about that from the book, which was super helpful. Nice. So did you do like a, was it a dramatic reading every week? Yes, it was. We, (laughs) (laughs) you know, we we read it on our own time and then came together and just discussed what jumped out at us, what surprised us, what questions do we have? And always trying to tie it back to the work we're we're doing now. And it always kind of came back to that of like, oh man, this is, You know, one of the examples I loved so much was while doing research, having your participants kind of make a soap opera with you, like kind of create Mm -hmm. characters based on people in their neighborhood. And I loved I love that example so much because you can just learn so much like kind of passively without asking many of those questions that we usually ask, you know. So we're talking about things like that and like, oh, that'd be cool to kind of incorporate that into maybe like a a user interview that we do for a client, you know, seeing where it fits in. Yeah. And I think that there's very light touch ways to do that. You know, I remember when I worked at um, Cambridge University Press, you know, one of the things that we advocated, I struggled to recall if we ever actually pulled it off, was the idea that in order to build, you know, services for teachers and students online, you needed to, you know, then make the websites actually appropriate for them, obviously, what user experience design is. And so the idea was that you get a big piece of foam core board and you cut a rectangle in it. Mm-hmm. And in a workshop, you have one person who's the user and then one other person holds up the foam core and looks through the window and they're the website, quote unquote. <laughs> and so the user then has to ask the website some questions, right? And then the website has to give them the answers to that thing. Oh my God, and so, yes. you know, you can see kind of a, <laughs> a parallel there where like very, very light touch, immersive kind of like role play and research methods in order to to dig into what your, your users actually need. Oh my God, I love that. That's like so, <laughs> That's like amazing. Blue's Clues, like Nickelodeon. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing that from now on. <laughs> like I'm no longer Jacqueline. I am <laughs> Mavericks OS. <laughs> That's amazing. I found a bunch of those research techniques. I think the, was it the Bollywood technique? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. 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 That one. And then there was another one where you had people walk through the town and essentially like give you a tour of the town. Yeah. Cultural probes. Yeah. And you can do physical tours. So that was like, you know, when I was doing research for the book, I found that from like the 90s, you know, so that was like 99 when a bunch of researchers did this cultural probe where they basically make a a packet of like printed out maps and booklets, you know, disposable cameras and stuff like that, and then hand them to participants and just let them document their world and their life. Um, So you do see this, and I've seen this kind of like action taken by people who are investigating communities, you know, especially like for kids, you know, they'll give them disposable cameras and be like, go take pictures of your world. And then they put the, the pictures up at city hall or whatever, you know, 
but this was much more research focused in that they were trying to find out ways to increase old people's participation in their communities. And in order to do that, you kind of have to understand, like, where do you go get coffee every morning? Or where's your favorite spot? And then you have a map of the town, and then they put a little sticky, you know, in their favorite spots, right? So you kind of build up this, like, physical model of who they are. So with present circumstances and people not being able to, to congregate unless they're incredibly idiotic, then you could use tech to do it um, just with like texting people and be like, take a picture or send me some of your memories, you know, from your, your photo roll or whatever. I like that a lot. We do that sometimes with like apps, just like a really lo-fi, like what's on your phone? Like what yeah. are your most, what's your most used app or, you know, how did you get to this interview today? Like, can you kind of give us a walkthrough of, of how you use your phone to do that, you know, or just that's very, um, leading but you know what i mean just kind Mm -hmm. of having their their phones tell their story (laughs) yeah to me like i keep coming back to and as i talk to more and more people about this and that and this is just a, a germ of an idea so don't like write this down anyone but how much of the research practices and the ways that we have of doing things have become kind of like not fossilized Uh, But we're relying so much on like practice that's built on practice that's built on practice. And do we forget a little bit of like just how human the people are on the other end, you know, how much they're juggling. Another thing that occurred to me is when we're asking people about their lives and what sorts of things do they do, et cetera, et cetera. We're trying to build up a user profile. Like, does it make more sense? Yeah. Just to like tell them to send us 20 selfies. Would that give me a better sense of who they are than like building up a whole user profile? So yeah, that's interesting. I always think too, it's it's so important to build trust, and it's so hard to sometimes if you are getting people through a service and you don't haven't talked to them at all, and they just fill out a screener, a few questions about themselves on paper, you know, especially now because now we're all remote, you know. So if doing any kind of interviews, it's you have to do it through your screen. Do you have any any ways that you build trust pretty rapidly just to kind of help ensure a more open discussion? So there are going to be user researchers who can answer that question a lot better than I am. I am not the pro's pro at any of this. Uh, but one thing that I, I do fall back on, um, I taught English for four plus years in Japan. And it taught me a lot about who I was and who I wasn't, but then also like different ways to get people talking. I mean, that's the name of the game, right? In order to practice the language, you need to make the words come out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. You need to write them down if you are a verbal person, of course. And one of the things that we found was there's one topic that people love more than anything else in the world. And I will stop right there and just see if you can guess what it is. What do people love talking about more than anything else? Okay, food. I'm going to say themselves. Yes, exactly. Everyone (laughs) loves talking about themselves. (laughs) Whether we admit it or not, like we are vain in that way. And so in order to build trust with students, like you get them talking about themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you subtle prods and, and hints and pushes and you get them on a path and they're going on and on about whatever hobby is. And then 40 minutes later, the class is done and they're like, wow, I had a lot of fun talking to him. That's so true. (laughs) (laughs) Like you didn't actually say anything, you know, you're just sitting there the whole time. So I think the same thing, you know, it has to be true. uh, When we do user research, we have to find ways to really get people to explain what's on their mind, where they're at, 
Um, and if it takes something like the Bollywood technique, where we like take them out of their real lives and make it a fantasy land, then I think that that's also appropriate. That's one of my techniques when I'm doing networking is is just keep on asking about the people that I'm meeting questions like what are they interested yes. in and excited about and it's amazing how quickly the conversation goes because yeah, they, they really enjoy telling you about themselves <laughs> especially yeah. when you're asking about like things that they're excited about yeah for sure we had this one lesson um in you know one of the, the english language books that we had and it was about answering yes no questions um, so pretty low level you know for us but this is something that you need to know so one of the kind of the habits among uh, Japanese students, not all, of course, but many of them as they were learning was to be quite curious about, you know, who you are, right? So it goes both ways. And very often the question would be like, where are you from? You know, where do you live? And of course, you're meeting this person for the first time, you know, you kind of walking into this lesson, you haven't met them before. And it's fine. But also you realize that if that happened to you on a street, like in New York, or in Grand Rapids, Michigan, or whatever, like, it would be kind of disconcerting. Like, why do you want to know where I'm from? <laughs> right? And so I would do this lesson on yes, no questions, and flip it around and get them to be like, Oh, do you live around here? You know, do you work in the area? Because it allows a person to be like, oh, No, and then the conversation's done. But it's still not intrusive. Mm. And so, you know, I think that there's like little techniques like that, that you can kind of use from from teaching language. And then it works as well when you're interacting with people you know, he's talking about research. So start there and then let them mm -hmm. kind of open up. That's interesting, uh, especially because like early on when I started doing research, I, I avoided those yes, no questions um, <laughs> for precisely the, the same reason that you're giving to, yeah. to include them. Yeah, I think that the situation will would determine it. Like, you know, I was trying to teach people how to like have a good conversation. <laughs> so that's very different than like my job is to elicit information from you. So, yeah. <laughs> right. So, we sort of dived into it, and one of the typical questions that we ask people is is what are what are you working on or, or what are you excited about working on? When we started talking about your new position. I assume you're still excited 2 months in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. This is um it's great. And, you know, just being able to like flex some muscles that I wasn't before, I think that's like always a goal for everybody. And it's also, I think it's opened up a completely different world. You know, civic mm -hmm. tech is a very lively and growing community. There's a, you know, the civic technologists handbook, which Sid Harrell, I believe is their name, just wrote. So like, I just bought that book and I'm eager to dig in and kind of see, you know, what their, their feedback and um, ideas are. So, you know, there's... In some countries, you know, like Estonia, for example, or in the UK, you've got gov.uk, you have all of these services that have been around for quite a while in allowing people to interact with their government, you know, on a digital level. Uh, but it still feels like in the US, we've got a lot of catch up to do. So to put it lightly, mm -hmm. <laughs> where are you based? Like I'm in New York, so there's like nyc.gov, which... I will withhold opinions on, but just wondering like <laughs> if where you're at, like if you have any, uh, you know, similar kind of digital systems for government. So I, I'm in New Jersey, so not very far okay. from you. Oh, and oh. NYC Duckov was also mine for a, a long time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm in Austin, which sort of depends. There is a group here called Odd, the Office okay. of Design and Discovery. Okay. And they're doing a lot of really great civic work here in Austin. I've talked with them a few times. I think the whole Austin office would love to do oh, uh, no. some civic work for them. 
because of the way that they're approaching problems and, and coming up with new solutions. So I think yeah. there's definitely some good and some bad uh, here yeah. in Austin and they're okay. working to fix it. I don't think I put it in cross-cultural design, but uh, there's a, I think they're called Rework, a Brooklyn-based consultancy research outfit. And they do a lot of work in uh, West Africa, Nigeria in particular, where I'm from. And one of them was about a project that they did with the World Bank where they went into a, um, a clinic that had been set up like out in the middle of nowhere, kind of like rural Nigeria, that wasn't really getting any traction from the, the community. They were kind of asked to go in and figure out why not. And as part of their research, you know, they found a, a couple of things. Like, first of all, the, the hours that the clinic was supposed to be open weren't obvious. <laughs> People didn't know when to go. Like, that, that's a big one, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But another one was that there was no feedback mechanism for people to complain about that specific thing. Who do you tell when you show up to the clinic and you're like, this thing isn't open? Who do you call? You know, in New York, like, do I call 311? Do, do I call my, my city council person? And so what they did was set up, a, and I think it was just like a, a pilot program, but set up an SMS system where people could just send a text message to their local government representatives with complaints and like feedback about the clinic. And one of them was like, it's not open in the evenings. And so the local government was able to find some money for a generator to keep the lights running in the evening and keep it open. So that's sort of like, mm. you know, doing a bit of research and finding out what people actually need. It can work wonders. Enjoy the uh, feedback as research aspect of that. If it was only so easy here. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But it can also take your TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. For example, you can use ExpressVPN to binge Doctor Who on UK Netflix. It's so simple. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. So just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices. Phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen, wherever you are. If you visit expressvpn.com tentative, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com tentative. Thanks again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode of Tentative. We've done some nonprofit and uh, civic tech work before, but also uh, seeing the work when we do like a interdepartmental uh, application, being able to watch people use the software um, and see the the change that it makes for them is one of the things that drives me. And I wonder like, is that what made you want to jump to doing more civic work or is there another driving force behind that? Um, yeah, I think that that's a big part of it. My career 
trajectory has always been one very much focused on, for lack of a better word, like, you know, the public good. Being a teacher, and my, my parents were both teachers. My father's a professor in Nigeria, right? So it kind of runs in the, the family. Both of my sisters are, are teachers. And then working at uh, Cambridge University Press, where I was designing and doing marketing, uh, web design and so on, for teaching materials and for teachers, uh, but still focused on what is it, like, what's the role of education in the public space, right? And then, uh, you know, working at uh, the last agency I was at, our clients were all nonprofits and all foundations. So got to see a very wide variety of, you know, client needs, but all very much focused on like, this is an organization that needs to hone the way that they speak about their work and, you know, be better at addressing what their populations need. Um, so I kind of feel like my career trajectory has led up to this point, like civic tech is natural progression of that. So in that sense, like it feels very natural and it feels like it's a good place to be, but people are, you know, they're dedicated and across the whole space. I think you see that quite a bit. There's, I think, um, you know, this longevity that you don't get on the agency side. You know, how do you say to a, a designer or, you know, a team of people, like, you're going to dedicate two, three years to solving a problem isn't mm. necessarily something that, uh, you know, agency people get. Or, you know, even when I was in marketing, the cycles are a lot shorter. Yeah. And so I think that's been an interesting kind of like conceptual change for me. Yeah, I wonder how one can still see the problem after looking at it for that long I know there are times when I'm working on a design, this is so small scale, but like, let's say I'm on a project for like two months after a while, I'm like, I can't <laughs> see this anymore. Like I'm yeah. so ingrained that I, I just don't, I need more. I need someone else to show me what's wrong. <laughs> I'm curious kind of what some techniques people have who are on projects like that for three, three to four years and how they gain perspective and, and renew their own perspectives. Well, what have you done anything that's been successful? That's a good question. Loaded. <laughs> um, <laughs> I challenge you. <laughs> the longest, th I mean, ThoughtBot itself, working at ThoughtBot. I mean, I've been at ThoughtBot right. for five years and we have our own, you know, challenges that we always, that we work through and together as a team and, and find ways. And I guess that is probably the, the longest project I have, I've been on. <laughs> right. And it is very key. We have a great support system when I guess if you do need some perspective, you know, knowing who to ask or just kind of putting your feelers out for having like a pair or someone to kind of come in and kind of help talk through something that you're going through with like a particular challenge you're trying to solve. That was going to be my answer. <laughs> really? <Nice. laughs> yeah, yeah, you've been at ThoughtBot for a while, Kyle. I have. I was m more thinking about specific projects that I've been on mm -hmm. and just having coworkers look at the work and constantly asking about the work so that they can do my second guessing for me, mm. but also having people who use the applications do that second guessing as well. Right. right I right. think they're doing usability testing or user interviews or having a regular, regular cadence for design feedback is fairly crucial for me mm -hmm. at least because like I do start to, stop to see the forest for the trees kind of thing. Yeah. I haven't done very much of this, but I find the idea interesting where you, you know, whatever problem it is that you're tackling, you essentially build some metaphor or a mental model that's outside what the actual problem is. And I'll just speak in theory again, because I haven't ever actually successfully pulled this off. But, you know, one of the examples that I loved from this uh, podcast, or I think it was a 
you know, a webinar or whatever that I went to was somebody at IDEO and they were talking about how they needed to figure out a, a way to serve videos for like an awards ceremony or, you know, one of these like movie things where you have to watch all these movies and then and rate them, you know, for the Academy Awards type thing. And of course, the situation was essentially it was like impossible to actually watch all of the movies or there were so many of them. And so what they did was when they went in to speak to the client, they just stopped by some store and they got a bunch of like DVDs. And as they were talking to the client, then one of their their teammates was like, you know, stacking these DVDs successfully, like in their hands until there were too many. And they just kind of like throw them on the table to make the point that you need some sort of digital service in order to serve all of this stuff. Like you can't just get these DVDs mailed to you Mm -hmm. and expect to watch them, you know? So like what's a a visual model or kind of like adjacent metaphor uh, that you can use in order to get your head out of your own work. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. I just look at my calendar. I'm like, Oh my God. I was going to say, I like how that ties to a physical world as opposed to a digital world, because there are a lot more constraints in the physical world. And maybe it's that, I don't know, like, I'm trying to think of what a a good way to do, like, A is to B as C is to D, you know, or think of like a, you know, a saying, you know, early bird gets the worm. Like, does that describe something about the problem that you're solving? And then you just like, you know, work backwards from there. Of course, present topic would be that those types of metaphors only work in certain cultural instances. So Mm. you got to be careful about that. This question got me thinking about one of the first projects where I realized that I was designing not just for an audience of like my neighborhood, but also for the world. Was there a point, I know you talk about being a third culture third culture kid yeah (laughs) so this might not be applicable to you but like was there a point at which you were designing and you realized oh this is what cross-cultural design is or was it always there because of how you grew up and like you talked about some of your traveling it's difficult to pinpoint an exact time when i can say it all clicked (laughs) um but i do remember trying to do some design updates when i was at cambridge and trying to streamline, you know, the e-commerce, the, the book sites that they had, it was built on some terrible platform CMS called Vire, which is just like from the pits of hell. It was so terrible, you know, but also there was a lot of work on the, the front end that I did in order to like streamline things, you know, strip out a bunch of the JavaScript, you know, reducing the HTML by, you know, two thirds type of stuff. Right. So that bit was fun, but there was one particular instance where and this was a ridiculous mistake on my part, but I had this drop down where I thought it would be a great idea because Cambridge operates in like 50 plus countries, officially anyway, where they have salespeople and kind of like staff set up to, to sell books. So I said, well, I'm going to have a drop down and the drop down will have a country flag and a language. So first mistake right there, <laughs> language doesn't <laughs> always apply to country. Mm. you know. And the second one was that I grabbed some of these little like PNG files, which was like all the different flags in existence, you know, and just like drop those on the server and then you kind of call it with your country code. Well, what happens when like a new country comes into existence, you know, South Sudan or something like that? Uh, so then you got to go into that file and like manually create this tiny little PNG of a flag and like, make it look the same and then attach it. And it was just a ridiculous mess. Oh, man. And I thought it looked cool. <laughs> But it was totally unusable. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think that was one of the points where I'm like, all oh, right, this is not 
a good and sustainable way to do this type of work if we're talking about mixing currency, language, locale, and a bunch of other factors. So yeah, don't do that, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That like crossover moment when you go from making things that you think that you think look cool to like (laughs) things that are way more usable and just kind of a little more based on patterns of the world. (laughs) It's just an amazing moment when you're like, oh man, yeah, okay. I think I know what I'm doing now. (laughs) Although the other side of that is I think that there's the naivete or whatever the word is where you're like, oh, this looks cool. And you kind of just happily going about your business as a younger designer. Yeah. As you get older in the business and then you get to that point where like nothing that I make looks good at all. I hate everything, but I just got to get it out there because I'm on deadline, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's the other side of the coin is like, this looks crap, but I have to launch it anyway. Um, And then you feel bad about it. So (laughs) And you never look at the site again, and then you quit, yeah, yeah. and then you move to a different country and start all over. Yeah, yep. right. That's right. Heard sheep. <laughs> yep. Yep, yep, but then, yep. like, 10 years later, you look back, and that site's still alive, and you're like, ah, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Right, yep. until it wins an award for how bad it is. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, I was right. It was so bad. <laughs> yeah. My first website I coded, like, I, I taught myself front-end development, and I had a client and I made this website and it was, I mean, I, it was fascinating. Like everything I did, I was like, wow. So that's how they make the image change on hover. Like that's so cool. Like I was fascinated by everything. Then fast forward a year later, I had a friend, my coworker was the one who was, had to update it. Like the client came back with updates and the whole time I felt his eyes on me, just like <laughs> shaking his head. Like what the hell is this? And I'm like, I'm so, I don't know. I don't know. It was a frantic Google search hack job. Like, <laughs> wow. Yep. We've all been there, <laughs> but it We've looked okay. <laughs> yeah. It was so funny. Well, I remember learning. So I was in, um, you know, I graduated from college in 2002 and we had to take a Dreamweaver class. Ooh. <laughs> Some of you may not be old enough to even know what that word means. And so this guy, I think his name was Laban. He was a you know professor at Michigan. And so he taught us Dreamweaver and I had all these plans. So I was a printmaking major essentially in, in art school and I was going to do these lithographs. Now, this was kind of like what my, my research practice was in school. You know, I would do lithographs. I would scan them into the computer, run them through Photoshop and do all this stuff to them, print those out, and then reprint on those. Um, and so it got to be all these different, like, cool layered effects, you know, four color cool. separations and so on, right? And I'm like, that's a great idea. I'm going to make a website that's a litho. Yeah. And, like, tried to design the whole thing on a plate and then scan it. And it's just such a ridiculous mess, you know? Now when I think about it. And I can only imagine what he was thinking that whole time, like trying to watch me, you know, use like spacer gifts to align this like color menu thing. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I've tried to even con- like think about incorporating my, my paintings into the web, it <laughs> yeah. just it's a quick like <laughs> the, the graph is a huge spike and then a quick downward turn into just yeah. nothingness. Yeah. Like, this is going to be a great idea. I'm going to paint the background of my website and then scan it in. And it's definitely going to scale, you know, like, nope, (laughs) 
that's no. <laughs> no. <laughs> the thing I enjoy most about that story is that he gave you the space to like do that and essentially fail. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, yeah. That's very true. I had grand plans. <laughs> and funnily enough, like I may be misremembering this, but I, I remember I was on a plane. I had flown from Japan to Michigan, I think, uh, for like a reunion or something like that. And some guy tapped me on the shoulder and he was like, hey. <laughs> and it was him. <laughs> and I, I think he had gotten a job at like, you know, one of the, the large uh, tech firms. And I was like, oh, what are you doing now? And so he was a developer there. And I'm like, man, I'm happy you landed somewhere good. So who knows what he's doing now, but the point being like, he was probably in his, you know, sad place as well. Like watching these kids hack together, you know, HTML dream mover. So he moved on too. <laughs> it's important to have someone around who will kind of set you up for that, either to fail or succeed, but knowing either way, it's going to be okay. You know? Yeah. 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 That was so important. And I feel like, you know, not to get too in my feelings or whatever, but you know, a lot of people have kind of commented on this, like on Twitter or whatever, this idea that this generation of designers, not all, right? I'm not going to generalize, but there seems to be an undercurrent of like, I need to monetize every single one of my experiments or, you know, the things that I do, it's not for the joy of like making something weird, but like it needs to be polished and out there and representative of, you know, who I am, and, you mm. know, the quality of my work and so on. Uh, the, the hustle side of it, you know, I definitely remember, you know, CSS and Garden and many other services. There are newer ones now where people were just like just hacking around to hack around. The web definitely had a different feel back then. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like the like, roles weren't as defined as they are now and it True. wasn't as competitive. A lot of times I just made up what I did, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and now people yeah. go to school for it. Yeah. So I that's think that's true. part of it. But definitely the, you know, the quality of people's work and thinking, we can't say that the web has grown up. I mean, as evidenced by you know, even <laughs> my book, like there's still a lot of work to do, you know, but mm -hmm. the way that people are thinking about digital services and the ways that like all of this stuff links together feels very much more, you know, grown up and like systems oriented, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that like very little of what we do these days is designing from scratch. Yeah. Very much of it is like systems thinking, you know, implementing design systems, you know, change one component here, change everywhere. Like it's just a different mental model of what the web actually is now. That's so true. Like if you add a shopping cart, you know what that's going to look like. And that experience yeah. is generally going to be the same as every other. Because you have you you have to do that now because yeah. you want it to be as easy as possible. So you need to fall back on patterns that people already know that have been established over so many years. Definitely. Makes it easier too, but also harder to find like the weird, you know, mm -hmm. like the successfully weird designs that still like can kind of like be, you know, good. <laughs> yeah. The one that I always think about is, um, and I'll probably not remember the name of it, but I think it's like um, Curry Cafe. It's such a strange website. Oh my God. Um, but <laughs> the whole look and everything, it's just so beautiful. <laughs> um, and it's like, all of the things that you would expect, you know, wow. scrolling and glossy full screen photographs and so on. But it's also very, very unique and, and weird. I love this website. <laughs> <laughs> You're fitting right in here. Kyle and I, we just think, call out random URLs and look at them. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. 
This is great. I actually really love the marquee. Um. <laughs> That's the first thing I did. I, <laughs> I, I looked at how they're doing that because I did. I did. It's been a few years. The Thoughtbot developers here used to do a conference called Keep Ruby Weird, and that was my favorite site to do. Speaking of like experimentation, uh, essentially on my own time, because yep. I would like design that as weird as possible. And the last one that we did had a uh, a very retro vibe. Um, and I was trying to duplicate the marquee that they did very well here yeah. on the Curry Cafe. Nice. I like this a lot. I'm into this. Well, we're coming up on time. And one thing that Kyle and I like to do at the end of an episode is something called the good, the bad, and the ugly. And okay. it's on a certain topic. I have one, Kyle. I'm not sure if wow, you Wow, you came but- prepared. That is very untentative of you. I know. I just thought of it, honestly. I promise you. The good. The bad. And the ugly. I would love to hear a good, the bad, and the ugly on writing a book. Um, (laughs) Please tell us what is good. Okay, so let me start with the bad, actually. Okay. Uh, to flip it over. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, the, the running joke uh, with, uh, you know, myself and my editor, Lisa Maria Marquis, was that, you know, she would say, okay, it's a good start. You know, are you making a good start? <laughs> Which means you are so behind, dude. You know, you really, really, really need to get your stuff in order. And I think that that was very true. You know, I had an original outline, uh, which I pitched a book apart, and they accepted that. And I started putting it together. Um, And I actually did a significant amount of writing over the winter breaks and just regurgitating a bunch of stuff onto the page. Mm -hmm. But the problem was it didn't make any sense. And I think what I was doing, I was lucky enough to have an editor who was basically like, "Mm, you're going to have to do better than this. You're really going to have to buckle down. And at one point, you know, she said, we may need an extra revision round. Mm. So, you know, look, the design director in me is like, no, blown budget yeah. no way. You know, we can't do that. Like what extended timeline? No. And so it just had to like sit down it's really, really late, late nights and get yeah. it, get it into to working order. And so then when I sent that, you know, I think it was like my second revision round sent it to her and she was like, oh, okay, I think you got it now. Let's, let's start refining. So that was like, that was the bad times, um, you know, yeah. sitting there at one o'clock in the morning, just like oh, lots of God. expletives. <laughs> yeah. And like, how do you see again? Like at that point. Yeah. You know, it's just so like one word at a time. I will also say that <laughs> I would play that mind game with myself where it's like, I'm so tired. All I want to do is just like watch a little bit of TV and then go to bed. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, look, it's one fifteen. Sonongo, you're strong, you're smart. You're going to put in another 15 minutes of writing until 1.30, and then you can take a break. Then you can nice. have a cookie. You know, <laughs> So you play these games with yourself. That was the bad times. Um, yeah. The good, obviously, was the response, right? Like being able to talk to people about it and hearing that examples resonated, people mentioning the stories. So that's the payoff at the end. Yeah. The ugly... Probably my notes <laughs> were just, you know, I actually, I printed out a bunch of chapters and like redline them, you know, copy editing on paper. And that was just mm-hmm. like, I needed to do it because I needed to get a, you know, out of the computer. But yeah. the process was, yeah, it, it looked really bad. It's like <laughs> blood all over. So, yeah. How go. long was the whole process? How long did it take? Probably about two and a half years, I think. Yeah. 
all said and done, you know, from basically acceptance of my pitch to when the book went live, it came out the end of February. Mm. So during Black History Month, which I was like super happy about. It was just a coincidence, but it was cool. awesome. And then New York went into quarantine like two weeks after that. So. well it's really great our team loves it we're actually finishing the last chapter today we're talking about it at one o'clock so nice nice okay (laughs) it's so wild (laughs) (laughs) so yeah (laughs) well thank you very much for having me i really appreciate it and uh you know obviously if you got other questions um email me for those listening you know you can get in touch with me online twitter mostly but uh, i'm available other places too where on twitter what's your handle uh, it's Sonongo, S-E-N-O-N-G-O. And of course, there's LinkedIn, which is the professional network <laughs> mm-hmm. for people who are so inclined. It's a little bit less uh, ephemeral over there. Great. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank All you right. for Thank you so much. Yeah, hopping on. Everyone can grab the show notes at tentative.fm. You can reach out to us at hosts at tentative.fm or on Twitter at tentative.fm. I think that's it. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.